You are listening to the Atlanta Real Estate Forum radio show, all about real estate edition. Shining a light on the movers and shakers in the real estate industry. The home builders, developers, realtors, and suppliers making it all happen. Good morning and welcome back to Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio's All About Real Estate Edition. I'm your host, Carol Morgan, and I'd like to give a shout out to our show sponsor, Denim Marketing, a company I know a little bit about. Um, At Denim, we work to make your marketing a comfortable fit, so give us a call if you need content for social media, public relations, marketing campaigns, or blogs. Today, I am pleased to welcome our next legend of real estate to the show. We're fortunate to be joined by a man whose career has spanned continents. Welcome to Charles Sharon, CEO with the Sharon Group. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you, Carolyn, for having me on. Uh, I'm flattered that you would... uh put me in the legendary group, but uh, that's fine. <laughs> well, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. Let's just dive in. Talk a little bit about your early career and how you got involved in home building and development. So how did I get involved in home building development? In, in high school, I excelled in mechanical drawing. Maybe that was legendary. Um, I, I made wonderful grades in things that I liked and things that I didn't. It's, it's amazing that um, that I made it through high school. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't do well in a lot of subjects, but those subjects that I did do well in, um, I excelled in. And mechanical drawing was one of them. And somewhere along the way, is a class project. We um, had a um, architectural Georgia industrial design. I, I forget the name. It's been so many years ago. And somehow or another, I wound up uh, winning the prize. And my parents decided, you're going to be an architect. And I said, okay. So I went to the university and took some pre-architecture courses and and landscape design courses. And somewhere along the way, my professor, who was head of the school, called me in his office one day when I was a sophomore and said, you know, you're just not going to make it here. You don't have your whole heart in it. You're always reading the Wall Street Journal, you don't stay up all night, and um, you're always trying to sell something. You need to go over to the real estate school. <laughs> so he physically walked me over to the real estate school, and um, I took the Georgia real estate salesman license course when I was 19 years old. And for a while, records were made to be broken. I was the youngest real estate salesman in the in the state of Georgia. Oh wow! So that uh, that sort of pushed me in the real estate uh, direction. Still not knowing which part of it. You know, real estate is multifaceted, of course. And from a family connection, they were uh, friends and, and business associates who were just selling off their company uh, in the public realm. And I went to work for their family office, and so that's how I that's how I got into the real estate business. And, uh, and the rest, as they say, you know, I hate to keep using the word, the rest, the rest is history. I the suppose. rest is history. Well, talk about when you started your building company and what types of homes you built. And, you know, what year was that when you started your building company? Well, you know, being a young person and just fresh out of college, there wasn't anything that I didn't know. I knew a lot more people who are now my age. And uh, I made some suggestions and sort of, fell on deaf ears and I said, well, you know, I think I'll, um, I'll go out on my, I think I'll go out on my own. 
we were doing business. Uh, I was working for, uh, at the time, a building company, and we were uh, borrowing money. If, I don't know, a lot of your listeners may not remember, but they were there was something called the Saving and Loan Associations. And one of the gentlemen at the SNL and I got along very well, and I told him I wanted to start out on my own. And, and he said to me, he said, you know, well, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I need five construction lots. And he said, wait, wait a minute, wait. <laughs> Let's start out with one. Mm-hmm. So I started out with one, and then I had to uh, select what area that I was going to build in. And uh, my forte, really, or our forte, was in the luxury home um, area. And so that's what I selected. And um, I went into the market at the uh, at the top of the market. And uh, it's it's amazing. Some of the people that uh, took the listing on uh, our my houses, people you would know today that uh, have their names, you know, and very well very well known people. So kind of grew up in a at a very very interesting time. And uh, we were building a lot of houses in Sandy Springs. And then when prices in Sandy Springs uh, on this side of the river became very expensive. A lot of people started moving over across into Cobb County. That was when it was the bridge was just a two-lane bridge, incidentally. And so I decided uh, to move to Buckhead. So I moved to Buckhead and started building these uh, mega mansions in Buckhead. And that was pretty much uh, the focus of uh, our market for a long time. Yeah. What year did you start building? Oh, you mean when I decided I was the smartest person that ever lived? In the yeah. Business? What year? Uh, what year was that? Yeah, that was uh, 1966, 67, somewhere in there, as I recall. You know, it was interesting back in, uh, not to date myself, but back in those days, building industry here and here locally was really perhaps made up most of just mom and pop uh, operators. We didn't have the big companies that had landed in Atlanta yet. Uh, I think perhaps maybe Pulte was one of the first, as I recall. But uh, those are the days when you knew everybody, and uh, I can't say that today, but it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about the gamble you took. You had shared with me previously that you built the largest spec home ever built in Atlanta in 1974. Where was that, and what did it sell for, and why on earth was that a good idea? Well, I'm not so sure it was a good idea today, but it certainly was a good idea. Then, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I decided, you know, again, when you're when you're young, you're invisible and you're you're bulletproof, and you know, just you can do anything you want to do. So, I thought, well, maybe this was a good way to really, you know, break into the market. So there was a um, local architect. He's since gone. God rest his soul. Henry Norris. Um, Henry was one of our, our first architects that did work for us and um, shared it with Henry. Well, first of all, I shared it with the bank. And you know, I'm going to blame it on the bank. The bank said, sure, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll fund, fund that. It. What do you mean? Yeah, we'll fund that. So we don't have anybody building these huge, uh, huge homes. So yeah, we'll, we'll finance that. Okay. So I cleared it with the bank and I, then I went to, uh, I went to our architect, and and uh, there was some uh, uh, right off of um, West Paces Ferry and Randall Mill Road. I bought a uh, subdivision or 
had already put the streets in uh, right off Randall Mill. And it was a um, one acre lot. And I think maybe I, <laughs> we have to laugh. I think for one acre right off West Basis Ferry Road in 1974, I believe I paid, mm, I think I paid about $25,000 for the wow. lot. <laughs> wow. That lot today, that lot today, if it was a teardown, that lot today would be well over a million dollars. So time Easily. So I built a um, built an 8,000 square foot house and it was a uh, Greek revival. Actually, the house is still there today. It's been been added on to since then. That house was, as I said, 8,000 feet. And we have some press clippings on it. But I'm just recalling from memory. I think it had nine bathrooms. It had a freestanding hand-built circular staircase. It had his and her bathrooms. Uh, we introduced uh, the European concept of bidets. Of course, that's all changed now. And so it was uh, quite quite the house. And um, that house was marketed for, I think it was $325,000. Oh, my goodness. That was the largest spec house built in Atlanta to that day. Yeah, $325,000, you know, let's go back to today's marketplace and it's... Uh, uh, yeah, today some, everybody wishes they could get something for $325,000, much less, imagine, in Buckhead. Yeah, and less than 2,000 square feet as well, and a tandem a tandem garage to park your car. So so that that in itself, that crazy notion that I had, it certainly garnered a lot of public attention, and it, it brought in the newspapers and television stations and whatever. And so the house, the house sold, sold it to someone whose name you would know, but <laughs> they will keep that confidential. And then, so after that, um, I said, well, you know, if you can build an 8,000 square foot house, you can build a 12,000 square foot house. Why so, not? <laughs> well, why not? Well, that was a biggie. Then that 325 went to $500,000 at 12,000 square feet. And I would dare say, in today's terms, building materials, uh, labor, et cetera, uh, that would probably be, I don't know, what, uh, four or five million dollar house. Easily. Easily. Yeah. Easily. Easily. Yeah. So that was that was the start. I was going to say, well, in addition to attracting some of the local papers, somewhere along the way, you also attracted Professional Builder Magazine, and they featured you. What doors did that open? Well, that's a very interesting question. I suppose we 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 pay our dues, or we we just get lucky. I'm not sure how that works, but somehow or another, someone from professional builder called me and uh, called us and said we'd like to you know take a look at what you're doing. And so I was interviewed and was very fortunate over the years to be featured in some of our developments that we did uh, later on in the magazine. And that opened up some doors. People started calling from all over. Uh, from, forgive me for laughing, but I uh, have to laugh at myself. I get a call one day from ABC. They want to talk about this big house in Atlanta. Uh, the Wall Street Journal called me. Time Magazine called me. And uh, so all of a sudden, 
I turn on the nightly news and I, and I see I see yours truly. <laughs> and then I then I then I receive a call from WSB. Uh, would you be on uh, one of our talk shows? So I said okay. So I became a regular on one of the talk shows, radio talk shows. So it's it's amazing. Not that I was uh, had any any special um, talents or whatever. I think uh, people were just amazed that. Uh, I would take a gamble and build a house that big. And, you know, I must say also, Carol, that a 12,000-square-foot house, uh, spec house in the market today, and when I say it's not a big house, that's not an unusually large house. You know, uh, as you well know, the numbers, the multipliers of two and three, you know, added to that today. So somebody had to start it. And, uh, listen, I have to tell you, I'm glad that somebody else is doing it in other. <laughs> wow. Well, you've had your hand in a variety of different companies. Um, share your experience about land development and getting into that. Well, that was a really uh, natural progression to get into land development. Uh, back to the 70s, uh, we had a little bit of a downturn in the 70s. In fact, that was really the first one, and it makes the downturn that we're experiencing today, you know, almost uh, like nothing. But back then, it was a it was a major, major, major thing. We had um, enough building lots, enough inventory of lots. I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day, where the gentleman was talking about running out of lots. Um, it was just the opposite back then. Uh, we had about uh, fourteen or fifteen thousand lots uh, in the marketplace to absorb. And I thought that, uh, as the gentleman on your previous program uh, mentioned, that uh, there's going to be a shortage one day because those lots will be absorbed. And so we decided to get into the land development business, and that's what we did. Uh, we stopped buying lots from you know other developers, and we became a developer ourselves. Started into you know land development which quite frankly, you know, we still had to go through the regulations. They weren't uh, in zoning. It wasn't as difficult as it is today. But once we were able to have our lots platted, you know, once I sold uh, you a lot, Carol, uh, there weren't any go-backs and, uh, you know, the basement uh, or the wallpaper wasn't coming off the walls or, you know, so it was just a different dynamic. And uh, we, uh, we enjoyed doing that and did that for quite a number of years. Which, in addition to that, that transcended into other things. Instead of uh, just building single-family homes, we started building a lot of uh, multifamily uh, for-sale uh, units. They, I think they're called condominiums. <laughs> and we started we started building a lot of apartments, and we did that for quite a number uh, quite a number of years. So that uh, pretty much covered that phase and then we got into the commercial end of it and uh, so we pretty much had our had our finger in a few pies not all of them but but a few in that construction genre well my understanding is you also started a home security company somewhere during this time talk a little bit about that that's an interesting question um back to the um the most uh, expensive speculative home to date in atlanta in 1974 we're always looking for new marketing ideas. In fact, the award that Professional Builder Magazine gave us was for market perception. 
And when we were adding all the amenities, you know, I thought back then it would be very interesting to put in a security system, which uh, you didn't find any, not to to that date, I didn't know of any speculative builders or custom home builders who were installing security systems, not unless they were specced by the uh, by the you know the homeowners, and so our electrician was uh, one of the largest. Actually, he was the largest uh, residential electrician uh, in this area. And I said to him, I said, you know, I've got this idea about um, about putting security systems in in homes. And he said, well, I think that's a good idea. What do you have on your mind? So I started looking in the marketplace, and I found um, uh, one one system uh, um, that uh, actually was made by Baldwin United. Uh, they were the one of the companies that did the uh, satellite, you know, uh, work and uh, on the moon shots and so forth. And so um, we uh, connected with them and. We started putting in uh, security systems, you know, in our homes. The name of the company was KeepSafe, and the idea went over very well. And KeepSafe was uh, born out of just putting speculative security systems in, you know, our homes. And then we had a little bit of a downturn, as I said, in 70, 74, 75, 76, somewhere in that area there, uh, which today, once again, would be child's play compared to what we see today. And uh, I was uh, friendly with uh, Charlie Ackerman. Charlie and I had owned some land together and doing some things together. And uh, I told Charlie about it one day and I said, I've got to make a decision, either stay in the building and development business or be in the security business, but I can't, I can't do both. And so Charlie had just made his deal with uh, the people over in the uh, over in the Netherlands, and uh, he was well funded. And it's about the time when Charlie was doing Tower Place, and so Charlie said, "Well, that'd be a natural progression." So I sold the uh, company to Charlie, and that became Ackerman Security, and I retained a small percentage interest in it for a while. So anytime you drive by a location that says Ackerman Security. Uh, uh, yours truly here had a little something to do with uh, its metric rise in the Atlanta marketplace. That's pretty cool. That was a, a neat story. Crafting the perfect marketing strategy is like constructing the perfect pair of jeans. You need all the right components and expertise. Unlike trying on a dressing room full of jeans, denim marketing makes the process painless and easy. Denim marketing is the market leader in creating quality original content for home builders, developers, remodelers, and others in the industry. Call 770-383-3360 or email carol at denimmarketing.com to find out how denim marketing can be a comfortable fit for your social media, public relations, marketing campaigns, email marketing, blogs, and other marketing needs. Well, I know that you got into the commercial space, and then somehow you ended up starting a company in Europe or moving part of your company to Europe or clear talk about that. Oh yeah, that. How did you end up in Europe? <laughs> yeah. How's that little thing? Well, any you know, Carol, anybody can buy a ticket on Delta. Anybody well, I know, Europe. but most people don't buy a ticket on Delta and stay for a while or start a company once they get there. 
Yeah, that that's a, a little bit of a uh, not to belabor the point, but that's a little bit of a interesting uh, tidbit <laughs> in my personal uh, my personal history. Yeah, for a while I was spending um, probably at least three months a year in the aggregate um, in the UK. So where all this came about, you know, it's interesting how you look at one thing and one thing, you know, leads to another. Through a business associate, there was a piece of property uh, that interests me that was for sale in Greater London. And that's a, another three cases of wine and another long, <laughs> long story. So um, I was introduced to a family, very prominent family. Uh, once again, we'll leave the family nameless, but I was introduced to a very prominent European family that lived in London. And um, we tried to work together on making this piece of property uh, work. But one of the members of the family, uh, once again, thought that uh, they knew more than I did. So that took care of that. But interestingly enough, uh, my partner-to-be was interested in automated parking systems. And because of areas like London and, you know, we'll just take London, for example, where, you know, the automobile is more of a uh, hindrance than, you know, a help and traffic is, you know, pretty bad. How are you going to park automobiles? And so, you know, I, I started looking into it and I thought about, well, you know, uh, we have a lot of cities in the United States that have the uh, same urban problems, suburban, not so much, where you can't live in suburbia, you know, without a car. So we started looking at automated parking systems around the world. So we selected uh, not the franchisee, but the licensee for one of the major, major companies. And it's very interesting. Um, any of the listeners understand about automated parking, automated parking, almost like a Rubik's cube where you drive your car in and it goes up a elevator and it goes into a parking space. And on the same amount of land, you can park three times as many cars in the same space. Mm -hmm. So that means uh, and one thing that interests me as a developer is that our whole uh, whole premise is based on density, and that meant that using automated parking, we could uh, allow uh, less space for more parking, if that makes sense, less space for more parking, and we could build more usable rentable space or space for sale because it, you know, automated parking doesn't have any distinction whether it's for sale or for rent. Or however you or however you use it. So we set up a company, set up an office in London, and um, we started doing uh, consultations all over Europe. And we went to other places in Europe. Uh, we opened up in Eastern Europe, in uh, Poland, and then we went to Istanbul and Turkey, and over in Ireland. And we started doing. Um, public-private partnerships uh, with municipalities, and we did a lot of consultations for for airports. And I suppose during the life of uh, this was uh, up until Brexit, which changed the dynamic of everything, we did probably or have done probably 300 consultations for, wow. uh, for governments, individuals, uh, to the likes of uh, Heathrow Airport, Gatwick. We did a lot of work up in Edinburgh, public-private partnerships in, in Edinburgh and Scotland and Denmark and then throughout Eastern Europe, over to Asia, over to over to Istanbul. It was uh, 
quite an interesting, you know, concept because um, as developers, uh, you know, we certainly, I don't mean to belabor the point, but just as a quick aside, we, you know, certainly used to zoning regulations and neighborhood uh, groups and, you know, it's going to crowd the schools, you're going to cause traffic, uh, you know, all the, <laughs> all the things that are a negative. But one thing that we ran into was very interesting and, we weren't expert then, but let's just say we we uh, went to school on this one. Is that building in older domains, building in old older cities, you run into archaeological issues where you uh, uncover, you know, you can uncover. Uh, we we worked on a, a situation in London. We were called in by one of the major uh, home builders, uh, name home builders, publicly traded company, where they about a mile away from the Thames River, is they uncovered an old Viking ship. Oh, that's cool. It was about 800 years old. And the Thames has been rerouted over the millennia. And um, so, you know, we we were called in to see if we could, wow. you know, help out on that. And then you skip over to places like uh, like Ireland if you're you're digging, and all of a sudden you uncover some Roman artifacts. The Romans were in Ireland, you know, thousands of years ago and then you jump over and hopscotch and you jump over to uh, Istanbul for example and where Istanbul is pretty much a layered city you know uh, it just builds on top of each other and you can uncover uh, we were working on something where we uncovered a old Roman cistern you know where they used to collect water so we've learned a few lessons they were the original plumbers you know Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to see some Roman aqueducts that are actually still in use today. And you ask the question, how did they do it? Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Well, you've talked about automobiles. You've talked about Viking ships. Let's talk for a second about planes. I don't know what it is, but home builders seem to have an affinity for planes. And you were involved in a couple of commuter airlines here in Atlanta. Yes, I was. And I'm not. I must add to that as well. Uh, you know, I have to say that the real estate development business was and is always uh, our core business. And uh, it afforded us, uh, uh, I, I use I and we in the same you know, vernacular. I may have my, the name Sharon on the door, but believe me, I didn't do all this by myself. I had some really, really great, uh, great people, uh, you know, behind me, uh, for example, my brother and my, my son. And so, you know, they, they were all indoctrinated and, um, you know, they, they afforded me the opportunity to go do some other things. And mm-hmm. so going back to my childhood, yes, uh, you're right. Uh, boy, little boys are always attracted to, um, what is it? Cars, planes, and boats. Yep. Things that move. Yep. Thank goodness. I never got into, um, to boats because my neighbor next door says, Charles, you don't need one because I have one. You can use mine. So right. thank goodness that took care of that. But um, I became very interested on a serious note. I became interested. Um, and of course, you know, transportation and, you know, we were, you know, you, you can link the automotive, uh, automated parking, you know, business to that. It's a way to get around. And so um, a friend of mine owned a little uh, commuter airline and flew out of Atlanta, out of gate uh, C2 at the Atlanta airport. And um, he was looking to expand. And uh, 
I showed an interest in that and we got together and um, I bought into I bought into the company and all of a sudden we were flying all over uh, the southeastern United States and we were flying some regional jets and somebody came along and wanted to invest with us uh, another uh, venture capital family from Washington DC wanted to uh, merge with us and we uh, merged with them, and I went on the board of their company in Washington, and we wound up um, selling the company to to Delta, and uh, that that was that made us that made us smile. <laughs> and then, well, you know, it's like building that uh, eight thousand square foot house. If it's eight, you can you know multiply it to twelve. Right. And so the same thing happened with the airline. Um, there was a company up in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, a little commuter airline, and they weren't doing so well. And uh, they were a private company, made an investment in them, and we wound up uh, controlling. It's not a good word, I guess, to use today, but we were the the premier uh, commuter airline out of Charlotte Douglas Airport uh, there. We did, uh, we turned the company around. I was obviously on the board. And the uh, family from Washington that was one of our major investors uh, wanted to monetize their situation. And I, I said, no, I said, we're all doing fairly well with that. Why would we want to do that? Well, you know, majority rules. I was the only one that ruled against it. But somehow or another, I uh, said, OK, I'll vote yes. So I had the job of uh, finding a uh, underwriter. And I went to Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch took us public. Wow. So I was on the board for a number of years of a public company. And I have to tell you, today, and even back then, there's no joy about um, being uh, on the board of directors of a public company. You know, if I wanted to sell one share of stock, you know, I had to get permission from the company. I had to get permission from the SEC and the people right. that uh, took us public, i.e. Merrill Lynch, they could go long or short on our stock any day of the week. So, right. so that cured me those two those two things, uh, you know, cured me. And uh, one of the uh, one of the perks of uh, being in that uh, that field for quite a number of years is that uh, the airlines had what they call interline airline passes, and so or agreements, I should say. And so I used to fly uh, my family and myself anywhere in the world free, as long wow. as there was space available. So that wasn't too bad. Great um, way to see the world. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And then all of a sudden, when I wasn't in it, I had to start buying tickets again. I don't, that, was a, I don't know. that was a rude awakening, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was. How did how did that happen? How yeah. That well, happen? I know along the way you found some time to give back to talk about your involvement with the Greater Atlanta Homebuilders Association. Well, that's a subject very near and dear to my heart. Um, when I went out on my own, one of the first things that I think was important is that. You, one needs to establish themselves, their selves. Uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, as I told you, I, I wasn't good in English. So, uh, you know, don't, don't grade me on this one. <laughs> but one of, one of the things that um, I think is very important is uh, you need to connect uh, with a professional organization, you know, in your specialty field. And the best one that I knew of and still today was the then the Home Builders Association of Metropolitan Atlanta. So when I worked for another builder for uh, a bit, uh, we were a member, so it wasn't that I didn't know about uh, the HBA. So uh, one of the first things I did is I 
I joined the HBA. And uh, that that turned out to have made some really incredible lifelong friends. I, you know, I think when we spoke, you told me you interviewed David Chatham and um, John Whelan, who are still my friends today. At least yeah. they spoke to me the last time I, uh, <laughs> I dined with them. So <laughs> That's good. That's I'm sure we still on speaking terms. Yeah. yeah. So we, we go back a long way to some of the, I guess, the pioneers of, you know, the modern day. But um, so I went through the, um, I went through the chairs. I started out um, as uh, head of the North Fulton chapter. And then I went through the ladder of uh, the uh, Home Builders Association of, of metropolitan Atlanta at the time and wound up as being president. And uh, that's a job that, uh, you know, you, <laughs> if if you do a good job, they're going to make you go back and serve another term. So <laughs> <laughs> I served, I served two terms at a very, actually it was a very tumultuous time. It was uh-huh. when the homeowner's warranty program was uh, introduced and, uh, that turned out to be a very uh, divisive uh, situation, not not uh, just locally, but uh, you know nationally. Hmm. And then, of course, having a tenure uh, with going up the uh, the local ladder and the state ladder, um, I just automatically became um, a member of the uh, national board of directors mm-hmm. at NAHB. Uh, to which uh, now, I guess, after all these years, they call me a life director. And while I was on the national board, uh, I had the distinct privilege and honor. And it was not only a lot of fun, but it was very enlightening. I served as chairman of the the NAHB Legal and Technical Assistance Committee, whereby we funded cases. uh, We filed an amicus on the part of developers, Mm -hmm. you know, all over the United States. And they would come to us for funding and uh, I've had the experience, uh, only because I was the right place at the right time, have uh, been involved in three Supreme Court cases. One wow. was the Boca, Boca Raton case. One was the Far City Enterprise case in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And the other one was the uh, Petaluma case. Um, the uh, Boca case and the Petaluma case were about no growth to limit the number of uh, building permits. And the the Far City Enterprises case was that the, somebody on the zoning board said, you know, we don't want to, we want to get reelected again. I'm not being very mm-hmm. nice when I say it, but I said, well, why don't we just take it to the people and let them vote on it? Oh my! <laughs> so we we funded that case, and uh, the people prevailed, and they voted on the zoning. And the only one that we won is that uh, uh, we won the Boca case and lost the other two. You know, it's it's interesting. Yeah, the, I think history is going to repeat itself on some of those. I expect yes. we're going to see some lawsuits over some of the things going on with municipalities uh, around the country right now and some of the zoning they're attempting to put in place that, you know, my opinion, I can say it. I'm not a developer, so they can't do anything to me. But I think they're violating fair housing policy. I don't think you can say it can be for rent or for sale. I think you have to zone it for the density. And, you know, it, it'll it'll just be interesting. Well, I, just, just a quick word about that. Uh, I totally agree with you. Not because you're looking for somebody to, <laughs> you know, champion your, champion your cause. But uh, I believe in fair housing. And, you know, people talk about we need affordable housing. And, you know, this started actually, I learned this in my days, uh, you know, uh, working over in Europe, where they're the ones that came up with the Europeans 
especially the, in the UK, they came up with, you know, if you build X number of units, you have to put aside, you know, so many units for, you know, affordable housing. Affordable homes. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, you know, no, well, we need affordable housing, but I don't want it next door to me, or I don't right. want a fire station next door to me, or I don't right. want a school next door to me. But if you're going to have a a fair and balanced economy, you've got to have those people who are working and those people who own businesses all in the same place. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that um, if you don't, you're going to have people who are foreclosed, not by lenders who are foreclosed at a cost, right. that they have to drive long distances to work. And they can't afford to drive to work because they spend so much time right. you know, with their transportation costs. Yeah. So like it or not, uh, that's the way it, you know, I'm speaking ethereally, you're, but um, yeah, no, you're know, right. on paper, that's the way that that's the way um, it works. That's the way it works. And so, yeah, I've had, you know, a good bit of experience, uh, you know, yeah. in that genre. But yeah. one of the things that I may add about uh, the Home Build Association is that at the time when the Atlanta newspapers, you know, this was uh, preceded to the digital age when you actually... I'm laughing, held a piece of paper in your hand mm-hmm. and you read a book or you read a newspaper or you read a magazine and you didn't read it online. So we were fairly close uh, with uh, some folks over at the uh, Atlanta newspapers in the real estate department. And as a result of that, uh, I wrote a uh, real estate column for, I think, five straight years in the Atlanta Journal in the uh, in the Sunday edition uh, on real estate. And um, it was uh, very enlightening because I was calling everybody to make sure that I had my facts straight because I used to get calls on Monday morning at our office about, <laughs> where did you get that fact toy? Yeah. How did that happen? Whatever. Yeah. You were oh, wrong. You know, yeah. Well, because they couldn't Google it to double check you. So they, you know, yeah. They couldn't. They, they couldn't, couldn't Google you. So. Yeah. That's awesome. No. And now, you know, uh, my competition would be Dr. Doctor or, or Literary Google. Uh, it's, right. Uh, it's Absolutely. amazing, what, you know, what's out there. Yeah. Oh, but, everything's out there. Yeah. That's one of the things about our professional uh, organization. I'm really long on professionalism, and uh, it's something that, you know, needs to keep on going. So mm-hmm. uh, I will hardly endorse anybody, you know, whatever field they're in, to be a member of their, you know, local local associations. I completely agree. Well, talk for a minute. We're actually getting a little low on time, but I would like to know what has been the most rewarding part of your career? Wow. Gosh. Take, I'll take a deep breath and say, I'll answer that in two parts, uh, both number one. Number one, to have the sense of accomplishment when I drive by or I see things that we have done that not only have given us great rewards and, and satisfaction, but made a contribution to our local community mm-hmm. uh, and other places on, on the planet where we've done work. And also, number one, uh, as a result of that, what I'm doing now, quote, remember I talked about earlier in this interview about about older people that they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> now I'm one of them. And so I try to do the best I can to give back, mm-hmm. and I'm on the board of uh, 
some uh, professional organizations, some 501c3, you know, uh, nonprofits. And I tried to mentor young people coming up in their businesses and they need help in terms of, if you know, whatever value that I can add, whether it be right or wrong, you know, if, if I can help, I get a lot of reward out of helping people just based on me being around for, you know, so long. Yeah, I love that. I think it's important to give back and it, it certainly is rewarding. Well, if our listeners want to get more information on you or the Sharon Company, where can they go? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, we've gone from uh, now you see us and now I'm, this stage of my life is now you don't. I'll tell you where you can find me. <laughs> Besides a P.O. box mailing address. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the digital age is is exponentially changed things. And, you know, we can be anywhere in the world. Um, you know, conducting business. And my my business focus today, you know, I'm, I'm in social media. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn. We can correspond on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on all the other, you know, other attendant, yeah. uh, attendant sites. Uh, and as far as, you know, what we're doing today, I'm just pretty much sitting on the sidelines waiting to see how this um, bump in the economy phases out. History I can speak from experience, uh, Carol. History tends to repeat itself. Sure does. And um, there's two projects that uh, one was a, uh, a public uh, storage project that I've put on hold just because the cost is uh, have gone rampant. And there's an apartment project uh, that we were involved in that I've also put on hold just because um, you know I, I don't need to go out and start something just to have something to do. So I'm just sitting on the sidelines and. I'm waiting, and uh, I hope it doesn't last as long as some people are prognosticating. And oh, by the way, if you ask me what I think, uh, my crystal ball dropped uh, 50 years ago, and I can't put it back together again. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm not sure whether my crystal ball makes any difference or not. <laughs> I'm sure hoping that some of the economists who are way smarter than I am, who are forecasting that 2023 is going to be, you know, a little bit of a rough year, but that the economy is really going to turn around and we're going to have another really good run in the real estate market from 2024 to, say, 2030. I'm hoping they're right. Well, let me just say it's something very positive. Uh, my glass is neither half empty or half full. It's always running over. That's why I've been able to survive all these years. Is With respect to the Atlanta market, uh, I think we're going to be okay in time. I think there are certain segments that are going to have to make some adjustment. But the one thing that I always look at when I do my own Sharonian econometric model is I look at jobs. Right. And we have a lot of manufacturing companies that are coming in here. They're going to create jobs. And in addition to the movie and the entertainment industry that's come to town, uh, uh, as long as we keep on having jobs, uh, I think we're going to we're going to come out OK on the other end. Uh, the rest of the country, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but, uh, you know, for Atlanta, I think the, the future looks good. But, you know, we're going to have some bumps for sure. Yeah. Well, I like your glass is running over attitude. Um, And I want to thank you for joining me in studio today. I think you and I could banter all uh, afternoon long, but we are running out of time. 
So with that, I'm going to say this is a wrap of this week's Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio's All About Real Estate Edition. Again, I want to thank Charles Sharon with the Sharon Group for joining me in studio today. On behalf of our show sponsor, Denim Marketing, I'm your host, Carol Morgan. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, then there's lots of opportunities to follow and interact with Atlanta Real Estate Forum. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, all the sites. You can also sign up for our newsletter at atlantarealestateforum.com. If you're interested in being on the show, contact me, Carol, at denimmarketing.com and let me know what you'd like to talk to me about. And with that, thank you for listening, and I'll see you right here again next week. Today's episode was made possible by Denim Marketing, the publisher of Atlanta Real Estate Forum, Atlanta's favorite real estate blog, and source for real estate news, trends, new home communities, model homes, builders, and more. Denim Marketing is a comfortable fit, like your favorite pair of jeans. Denim Marketing tailors marketing strategies to meet your specific needs and niche. Try them on for size. They will work to create a perfect fit for your company's marketing program. Call them at 770-383-3360 or send an email to info at denimmarketing.com. For more information on Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio or to inquire about being a guest, contact info at atlantarealestateforum.com. Check out the radio show by visiting atlantarealestateforum.com or by listening to the show on your podcast or iTunes app. And if you enjoyed today's broadcast, we'd sure appreciate a rating and review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Atlanta Real Estate Forum radio show.